The explanations may have varied, but for many people within the British film industry, from the 1940s right through to the 90s, directors such as Powell and Pressburger, Ken Russell and Derek Jarman were far too outré for the establishment's liking. Their distinctive flights of fantasy, iconoclasm and erotic expressionism broke with the strongly held belief that cinema's métier should be realism. Perhaps because cinema came to a late Victorian Britain where the literary landscape was dominated by Charlotte Bronte, Mary Ann Evans, Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy, the tendency was towards realism. From its early pioneers, Robert W. Paul, Bert Akers and Cecil Hepworth, their strong tradition of documentary, Mitchell and Kenyon, John Grierson and Humphrey Jennings, and their first studio moguls, Sir Oswald Stoll, Michael Balkan and J. Arthur Rank, it were as if a royal edict had been issued declaring that realism, not expressionism, should be the standard. As a consequence, and for decades, the prevailing qualities were those of John Bolting, Basil Dearden, Tony Richardson, Ken Loach and Mike Lee. Which might go some way to explain why there has never been anyone quite like Peter Greenaway. Greenaway's early career personifies the importance of state-funded filmmaking. He initially intended to be a painter, but after studying at Walthamstow College of Art, he joined the Central Office of Information, where, as a civil servant, he directed and edited short films for the government. His big break came in 1981, courtesy of the British Film Institute. The Falls, a three-hour experimental documentary made up of 92 short films, was followed the next year by The Draftsman's Contract a murder mystery set among the formal gardens of a late 17th century English manor. With an instantly recognisable and meticulous visual design and an equally distinctive soundtrack composed by Michael Nyman, Greenaway's film is not so concerned with who committed the crime as it is with questions about art and its relation to nature, materialism and its relation to religion, and property and its relation to marriage. My services as draftsman for 12 days for the manufacture of 12 drawings of the estate and gardens, parks and outlying buildings of Mr. Herbert's property. The sites for the 12 drawings to be chosen at my discretion, though advised by Mrs. Herbert. For which, Thomas, I am willing to pay £8 a drawing uh, to provide full board for Mr. Neville and his servant. And... Uh, and, madam. And to agree to meet Mr. Neville in private and to comply with his requests concerning his pleasure with me. The release of the Draftsman's contract coincided with the setting up of Britain's new television station, Channel 4. The independent broadcaster acted as production partner on several of Greenaway's following films, which served as a remarkable contrast to the equally vital realist fare which Channel 4 was also financing. Stephen Frears's My Beautiful Laundrette, Mike Lee's High Hopes, Ken Loach's Riff Raff, Isaac Julian's Young Soul Rebels, and Gorinda Chadas' Baji on the Beach. It's so nice to come out like this, isn't it? These people know how to enjoy themselves. Yeah, well, as soon as we try and enjoy ourselves, people start to talk. What people start to talk? Let and let live. Look at poor Jinder. I hear her husband used to beat her. These modern girls can't adapt. And those with jobs are worst. Hey, Asha, wake up. You know her in-laws. Is it true? No. She must have done something. Released in 1989, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover is a very simply plotted drama, for which Greenaway took inspiration 
from the 17th century Jacobean revenge tragedies, specifically John Ford's Tis a Pity She's a Whore. As Greenaway's title indicates, the film has four main characters. The cook who serves up the meals, the thief who owns the restaurant, his wife whom he verbally and physically assaults, and then the man whom she takes as her lover. The thief finds out and murders the lover, after which the wife conspires with the cook for her revenge. But all that is really just a table upon which Greenaway examines amongst many other things, the creation, consumption and function of art, and its relation to sex and death. But for most people, all they saw was an eviscerating condemnation of Margaret Thatcher's free market economy that was the hallmark of 1980s Britain. It was also the hallmark of 1980s America. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. By turns subtle and crude, explicit and arcane, inventive and repetitive, brutal and tender, the film bristles with the sort of intellectual rigour and cinematic flair that many within the BFI championed, while several outside its ranks vehemently opposed. One of the loudest critics was Alan Parker, who once dismissed the BFI as 28 intellectuals in a library. Later, Parker became chairman of the Board of Governors to the Institute, but here he is in 1983, railing against Greenaway and state-funded cinema. I don't want my children to grow up here, but if I see that my industry is taken over by that kind of pretentious uh, pseudo-intellectual movie, then there's no place for me to be here, and, uh, and I'll go. Mind you, here was what Greenaway had to say about Martin Scorsese. However much we might admire somebody like Scorsese as a grand old man, of American cinema, he still makes the same films as Griffiths, way back in 1910. The emulsions on the cinema film are a little more clever, the publicity machine is a thousand times better, but the narrative formats, development of characters is almost exactly the same. Greenaway's opinion of Scorsese sounds dismissive, but what he is really saying is that despite all its enormous technological developments, cinema is still text-based. Whether we mean script writing, which takes a lot of its cues from ancient Greek theatre, cause and effect plotting, psychological realism and narrative closure, or even with the shift from celluloid to digital, it is all still written, only now in binary code. Here is Greenaway in 2016 with Ian Hayden Smith in an interview hosted by BAFTA. Yes, um, I always think, and this is probably a very unpopular thing to say, that all film writers should be shot. <laughs> we do not need a text-based cinema, you know, we need an image-based cinema. You know, it says in the Old Testament, in the beginning was the word, sorry, that's wrong, in the beginning was the image. <laughs> From its opening images, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover is meticulously constructed, with Greenaway utilising almost every cinematic device at his disposal. We begin in slow motion on a pack of dogs picking over raw meat. Then, in a movement reminiscent of the opera sequence in Citizen Kane, the camera cranes up through scaffolding to where we see two men open a velvet curtain, down onto a ramp. Cars and vans appear, a gang gets out, and proceed to strip naked a man before covering him in dog feces. The violence and vulgarity of the image is counterbalanced by the symmetry brought to the frame by cinematographer Sasha Vierney. This was Vierney's fourth collaboration with Greenaway, and they would work together on four more films. What attracted Greenaway to Vierney's work was the imagery he had brought to bear on one of Greenaway's favourite films, Alan René's cerebral puzzle last year at Marion Bad. 
deploying the same 2.35 aspect ratio as Rene. Greenaway then smoothly tracks right, bringing us inside the building which we discover is a restaurant. Another silken tracking shot takes us across the kitchens where the food is prepared, and then into the dining area where the food is consumed. Later, Greenaway admits us to a pristine white bathroom where the food is then excreted. Each of those different spaces is afforded different lighting schemes, which chart preparation, consumption, digestion and defecation. We are talking about literally the gross national product. With that in mind, look once again and you will notice that the film opens at the rear of the restaurant. That is just one of many puns and conceits that Greenaway weaves into again what is a very simple plot. But plot has never been a concern of his, as he often leaves it exposed as a framework upon which he can hang all manner of themes. And in the case of the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, they would include the body, its carnality, corruption, physical decay, and the aestheticization of all those aspects. No, you don't eat it like that. Let me show you. Oh, imagine you are sucking the little fingers of a lady, or... Now, you wouldn't understand that, since you'd never get that close to a lady. Who'd want to get that close to you, for God's sake? I wouldn't be so interested in her fingers. Hey, that's the sort of remark I'd expect you'd make. You'd just be intent on whipping it in, whipping it out, and wiping it on your jacket. Brilliant as Greenaway's film is, I do think he made an unfortunate misstep in his characterization of the thief, Mr. Speaker, played by Michael Gambon. Since their foundation in the 16th and 17th centuries, London's banks and investment brokerages were the enclaves of wealth and high social standing. But with the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979, the square mile ceased to be the reserve of class privilege, with new employees recruited from London's East End. Employees whom the senior staff sneered at as barrow boys. Evidently representative of this group, Mr. Speaker has not only elbowed his way to the table, but has also taken over the restaurant. Having acquired his status thanks to Thatcher's open market, Speaker is now seeking to buy his way into the establishment. Such a phenomenon had already been caricatured for a number of years by comic Harry Enfield on Channel 4's Saturday Live. I got piles! <laughs> Right. I'm in the politics, right? All you need to know about politics is that Mrs. Thatcher done a lot of good for the country, but you wouldn't want to shag it. That's all. <laughs> Irrespective of how Speaker acquired his wealth, and regardless of how much wealth he has amassed, his accent will forever betray his origins. And those origins seem to explain his uncouth behaviour and boorish regard for literature, painting, sculpture, and classical music. Which in turn suggests that only people from the upper classes can appreciate the value of art. In this instance, I think it would have been more startling had Greenaway directed Gambon to deliver the very same dialogue, but with an accent commonly heard on the fields of Eton or Winchester, echoed within the halls of Oxford or Cambridge, and finally belched at the banquets of the Bullingdon Club. Which is what Laura Wade did in 2010 with her play Posh which Lona Scherfig brought to the screen in 2014 as the Riot Club. Chaps, chaps. I think that's a bit insulting to Lauren, actually. Wait, 300 quid? No, no, no. Surely it should be something that actually makes a difference. 
Like, um... Two minutes here, please. 27 grand. What? It's three years tuition fees. Just for a few blowjobs. Spicy. <laughs> I'm serious. Give me your account number. I will do a transfer right now. Initially read as a critique of Thatcherism, its most apparent strength today is through its characterization of the abused Georgina Speaker, played by Helen Mirren. The way Georgina eventually turns the tables on her sadistic husband repositions the film so that it can now address the Me Too and Time's Up movements. How about some, uh, some uh, les hauts d'oeuvres, cat uh, au poivres, terrine, a filet lamb, a poison au It's poisson. What did you say, Josie? What did you say, Josie? What did you say? What did you say? What did you say? Here is Greenaway speaking at the Venice Film Festival, where it received its premiere. Helen has to make a journey from a cowed, coerced, bullied woman, gaining courage through her love affair to reject this appalling husband. So she does move through various stages and plateaus of confidence and ultimately comes out of this somewhat heroic figure on the end there and the famous last word of the film, which is simply cannibal. Mirren was not Greenaway's first choice for the role. Vanessa Redgrave had initially signed on, but scheduling conflicts eventually forced her to back out. Redgrave's screen persona and her commitment to several political causes would have made her ideal, but undoubtedly Mirren provides several layers to the text. She first gained notice in 1969 with Michael Powell's misbegotten Age of Consent, where she played Cora Ryan, a newborn muse to ageing artist Bradley Morahan, played by James Mason. Three years later, Ken Russell cast her in Savage Messiah, his biopic of French self-taught sculptor Henri Gordier-Breschke. There, Mirren played Gosh Boyle, a sex worker who transformed into Breschke's muse. More than repeating her earlier role, however, Mirren's fictionalised character is also a suffragette. In 1981, she played Morgana Le Fay, the powerful sorceress in Excalibur, John Borman's retelling of the Arthurian legend. Just like Georgina in Greenway's film, each of those women possess a sexual allure, which Mirren made sure never became their defining characteristic. Which means the role that offers the greatest comparison to Georgina comes in John Mackenzie's The Long Good Friday, which opened 1980s British cinema just as surely as Greenway's film closed it. Mirren plays Victoria, wife of ambitious London gangster Harold Shand, played by Bob Hoskins. I'm setting up the biggest deal in Europe, with the hardest organisation since Hitler stuck a swastika on his jockstrap. I've been to incredible lengths all day to keep it incognito. And now you, over a sherry, calmly tell the whole story. I had to tell them everything or the deal would have been finished. Harold, your trouble is you just don't understand their psychology. Bollocks, you smart prat. I can't talk to you. Shand wants to go legit and become a property mogul, purchasing vast tracts of docklands and redeveloping them into what he hopes will be central to London's bid to host the 1988 Olympic Games. Gambon was not Greenway's first choice for the thief. Albert Finney had already turned the part down flat. So I wonder, had the notion ever occurred to Greenaway to cast Bob Hoskins as Albert's speaker? What I'm looking for is someone who can contribute 
to what England has given to the world. Culture, sophistication, genius. A little bit more than an hot dog, know what I mean? Greenaway's films may not be to everyone's taste, but they are crucial to the survival of cinema as an art form. Whether they be distinctive, offensive or provocative, they offer a vital alternative to mainstream cinema. That is, whatever cinema is now. And for that, we leave the final word to the grand old man himself. I believe that cinema died on the 31st of September 1983 when the zapper or the remote control was introduced into the living rooms of the world. Bang! Cinema ceases to be passive and becomes active. You, the audience, are now, in some senses, in control of the filmmaking process. You've all got mobile phones, you've all got camera recorders, and you've all got laptops. So you're all filmmakers.